So please grab your Bible if you have it with you or pull it up on your device. The passage that we're looking at is also in the bulletin. If you want to turn to page 8. And you'll remember that last week we talked about how the church was to honor widows back in the first century. Paul says in verse 3 of this chapter, of chapter 5, to honor widows who are truly widows. And so we talked last week about the responsibility of the church to honor widows, first by laying the responsibility at the family. Are, is there, are there family members who could care for the vulnerable people? And if so, the family has the first level of responsibility. But then if there's no one to care for the widows, the church should step in and provide care. But then we also talked about how Paul envisioned certain widows, those who were over the age of 60 and who met a certain moral qualification to receive long-term support from the church. And we said that it was a form of being on the, the payroll of the church. And it wasn't just a handout, but these godly, morally qualified widows would receive ongoing support from the church and that they were essentially employed by the church in the service of the poor, of the weak, of the, of the marginalized. And that's where we pick up today with this same logic from the Apostle Paul. So he's been talking about honoring widows and widows who are on the payroll of the church. And now he thinks of another group that is often on the payroll of the church, and that's the elder who labors in preaching and teaching, the minister who is paid by the church to labor in the word of God in prayer. So now Paul's moving into how to honor ministers, how to honor leaders within the church. So again, this is 1 Timothy chapter 5, and I'll begin reading in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we look forward to the time when everything will be laid bare, uh, when everything will be made clear. Lord, we 
now live so much in confusion and clouds, uh, mental clouds, emotional clouds. We, we pray, Father, that today you would clear away the, the, the mental clouds and the distraction and the tiredness and the uh, things that could that keep our mind from the task at hand and let us focus on you and on your word that we can glean what we need from it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the very beginning of our text today, we, we see Paul telling the church to honor elders. And you'll remember that elders are the leaders of the church. We spent a lot of time talking about the office of elder back in chapter 3, where Paul lays out the qualifications for that office. And you remember that elders are sometimes called overseers, they're sometimes called shepherds, they're sometimes called ministers, but that the, 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 in the New Testament, the, the vision is the church being led by a plurality of elders, a group of elders laboring in the church. But of course, when we consider the question of church leadership, it can raise a lot of, of difficulty because it's hard to relate to leaders so often. Churches have a hard time relating to leaders. And you can see examples both in our world today and throughout church history where the church has fallen into one of two extremes. So one extreme was to, to essentially dishonor the leadership of the church, to not value the work, to not respect the work, to, to not protect the minister. But the other extreme is the idolization of the leadership, where the, the leadership can do no wrong where really instead of worshiping God, they're worshiping the leadership of the church. And so it's a challenge to relate to leadership. And that's not just in the church. That's a challenge in the secular world, in the business world. Whenever you have someone leading, we wonder how do we relate well to leadership without dishonoring them and without, without idolizing them, but yet honoring them. Of course, it's a, it's a funny thing to preach on. This is, again, where we're thankful to do uh, ex expositional preaching, going verse by verse through books of the Bible, because if not, you might wonder why I chose this passage to preach. Uh, but, but thankfully, these things pop up, and it gives us an opportunity to talk about it. And so we're asking the question, how can the church honor its leadership? And we see three answers in this text. So here's the, the first answer that... The church honors its leadership by guarding against worldly distractions, by guarding against worldly distractions. So look in your Bible at verse 17 again. Paul says, let the elders who rule well, who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. So this is drawing out a distinction that we talked about when we preached on the office of elder back in chapter 3. But in the, in the New Testament, the church is ruled by a group of elders, but the elders themselves are divided into two classes. There are ruling elders who serve as shepherds and leaders within the church, but most often they are bivocational or they are often lay leaders who receive their income from working a secular profession. But then on the other hand, there are teaching elders 
who are generally supported by the church. They're on the payroll of the church. And that opens up more time and energy to devote themselves to the ministry of the word, to prayer, to leadership within the church. And just as a, as a side note, with Presbyterian church government, I, I heard someone say once, uh, told, walked up to me and said, Presbyterian's not in the Bible. And I said, well, actually, the, the Greek word for elder is presbyteros, where we get the word Presbyterian. So this is a, a passage about biblical Presbyterianism. But when we think about the, the way that even our church is structured with teaching elders and ruling elders, that it actually is a, is a, a guardrail for the church. Because I, have, as a teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church in America, I have the same vote as a ruling elder who isn't a vocational minister, who's serving as a leader and a shepherd in the church. But I, I find that that actually guards and protects the church because you have people making decisions and contributing to the leadership of the church who, yes, they maybe went to seminary, they have more theological training, but they are dependent on the church for their income, and so that can bias them in certain ways. But then you also have people leading and guiding the church who are not dependent on the church financially, and that can give them a very clear insight into what is actually going on. And so having leaders who are vocational and who are lay helps protect the church. That's just a, a side note. But as we look at our text today, notice that Paul says that these elders, these teaching elders, are laboring in preaching and teaching. And he says that the teaching elders should be worthy of double honor. And he's not there talking about simply a title, but he's talking about pay, that, that the, the teaching elder can get paid. He can be on the payroll of the church. And so you can think of double honor as something like our English word honorarium, that the the, the, the elder who is laboring and preaching and teaching can receive an honorarium from the church, that they can receive financial support. So this is every pastor's favorite verse here. But if you look at, at, at it again, he, he says that, that they can receive double honor. And just to show that he's talking about receiving financial support, he quotes two Bible passages to prove the point. So look in your Bible there at verse 18. He says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And so the first passage that he's preaching there to prove that a pastor can get paid is Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. And that says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. And that's an interesting place for him to turn, that, that Paul is drawing here on the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, that the, the part, the, well, really the civil law of the Old Testament state. And of course, as New Testament believers, that the civil law is not binding for us anymore because the church isn't a nation state, but there are principles of wisdom, of general equity within the ceremonial law and within the civil law of the Old Testament that we can use to guide us. And so Paul's saying that in the Old Testament, when they would thresh the grain, which they would have wheat, and it was hard to get the wheat off of the stock, and so they would bring the, the wheat onto the threshing floor, and then they would have animals go around and around in circles, treading out the stalks of grain, knocking the wheat off of the stock. 
And the principle in the Old Testament was that you shouldn't muzzle the ox while he was treading on the grain. And the idea is that if, if, the, if the ox is working, that he should have some sort of fruit of his labor, that he should be able to, to eat for his labor. And apparently that principle was picked up even in rabbinic Judaism around the time of Jesus, that they understood that this is a bigger principle that applies to other areas of society. But here, Paul is saying that principle of equity back in the Old Testament applies to the church today. The uh, pastor is the ox who is treading the grain of the word of God. And he's saying that, that if he's treading the grain, that he shouldn't be muzzled, that he should be able to eat as well. And as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 15, those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So that's the first passage that Paul quotes. But then Paul quotes another passage of Scripture. And this one is actually the book of Luke, chapter 10, verse 7, where Jesus says the laborer deserves his wages. So it's interesting that Jesus is he's quoting an Old Testament passage as Scripture, but he's also quoting a New Testament passage as Scripture. And so this is showing a, a pattern in the early church to begin regarding the, the New Testament writings as equal to the Old Testament writings, to be handling it as scripture, that it's an authority for the church. And Jesus is showing that if someone is sent out as a missionary, and that's the context in Luke 10, that he can rely on the hospitality of those to whom he ministers. And that is okay because the laborer deserves his wages. And so pulling out that principle, Paul is saying that if a, if a missionary can rely on hospitality of the people to whom he's ministering to receive material support, then presumably a minister of a church, a teaching elder, can receive support from that church as well, drawing from these two principles. So again, he's saying that the pastor can get paid, that he's worthy of double honor, and I think that as we, as we think about this principle of receiving financial compensation, that it guards against worldly distractions. And that's the goal. And, and the first worldly distraction that it, it guards against is the, the worldly distraction of poverty. I know some pastors who, who struggle to make ends meet, where the, the church does not provide enough for them to care for their family. And, and so they, they face the question of, do I continue in ministry or do I leave the ministry to care for my family? Because you remember, remember back in verse 8 of this chapter from 1 Timothy 5, Paul says that if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of the household, his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so feeling that pressure, people can, can leave the ministry to try to not abandon their family to poverty, to need. It's interesting that this is actually something that was identified by a leading Puritan even in the 16, the late 16, uh, sorry, the late 1500s, early 1600s. And his name was William Perkins, and he wrote a book on ministry at his time. And this is what he, he said, that there was a shortage of qualified ministers in the church at his time in the late 1500s. And he says that it was because of the inadequacy of financial recompense and status given to those who enter the calling. 
The lack of such provision is the reason why so many young men with unusual ability and great prospects turn to other vocations, especially law. That is where most of the smartest minds in our nation are employed. Why? Because in the legal practice, they have all the means of their advancement, whereas the ministry, generally speaking, yields nothing but a clear road to poverty. And so again, that's back in the 16th century. He's, he's saying that, that the, the brighter minds, those who are gifted communicators, are going into law because they can more easily support themselves and provide for their material needs. And then Perkins is saying that shouldn't be, that, that they, they should actually care for people within the church. And of course, that principle applies today as well, that there can be this the sense of supporting the work of the teaching elder in the church so that they aren't distracted by the question of how they're going to care for their family and can focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. So again, you're guarding against worldly distraction. But there's another worldly distraction that is equally dangerous, if not more dangerous. And that worldly distraction is excessive wealth. And this can be a problem as well. Because drawing from the image of Paul here, he says that if the, the ox is treading on the grain, it should be able to eat some of the grain. But he doesn't say that the ox can sit down and gorge himself on the grain, leaving nothing else for anyone else. But sadly, that is often what happens with church leadership. You see so many examples of leaders within the church, of pastors who become rich, who receive these enormous salaries while people in the church are living in poverty. You can think of examples today of certain megachurch pastors who receive millions of dollars every year from their congregations, and many in their congregations are struggling to make ends meet themselves. And then the, the pastors can buy expensive watches and live in vast mansions and buy big boats and, and act like rich, powerful celebrities instead of humble servants of Christ. And that kind of excessive wealth can also distract from the ministry of the word. It can be a worldly distraction. It's dangerous for the church, dangerous for the minister. And so I think that, that a good principle, as we, as we think about this, is actually drawn from the book of Proverbs, chapter 30, verse 8. Which, said, which says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you, saying, who is the Lord? Or, or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And so that should be the prayer of pastors and leaders within the church. Give me neither poverty nor riches, because both can bring a snare and of course, salaries can be different for different areas. Uh, a, a modest salary in Manhattan is very different from a modest salary in rural Iowa. And so there, you have to figure your context. But the principle is the same, that the, that the church honors its leadership by guarding against worldly distractions. So that's our, our first answer to the question, how does the church honor its leadership? But then here's the, the second answer to that question, that the church also honors its leadership by guarding against both 
slander and scandal. By, by bar, guarding against slander and scandal. So look at verse 19 in your Bible. He says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So here again, Paul is drawing on a principle from the book of Deuteronomy, from the Old Testament. In the the civil law of Israel, this is what we read. This is Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. It says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with an offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And of course, that principle is picked up by Jesus in Matthew 18. He says that if you're, if you're facing someone in the church who is sinning against you, that you go to them first individually. If they repent, wonderful. But if they persist in sin, you bring two or three witnesses along with you. And if that still doesn't work, then it's brought before the church and becomes a matter of church discipline. If the person still doesn't repent, they are excommunicated from the church, put out of membership from the church, regarded as a Gentile or tax collector, as Jesus says. But there's this principle of you need adequate witnesses. It can't just be hearsay. It can't be based on simply one person's testimony. And so as we look here at verse 19 in our, in our text from 1 Timothy, we see that Paul isn't laying down necessarily a higher standard for ministers. It's not that ministers have some sort of qualified immunity where they don't face any consequences if they are in blatant sin. But he's saying that, that the, the standard is actually the same, that two or three witnesses are necessary, but that a charge shouldn't even be entertained. It shouldn't even be talked about unless those witnesses are present. And of course, this is something that helps guard the church. It protects the church because we know that Satan is a ravenous lion, that he is the, the deceiver, he is the slanderer, he's the father of lies. And throughout history, we've seen that, that people who are trying to seek the Lord often face slander. Jesus faced slander that people made up lies about him. The Apostle Paul faced slander. We could think of an example like Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s. He was a, a prominent leader in the First Great Awakening, uh, an amazing theologian, pastor. And he oversaw a renewal and revival in the town of Northampton, Massachusetts, to the place that almost everybody in the, in the whole town repented and joined the church. But eventually, the... Satan was able to, to get under the, the armor, as it were, and there started to be a lot of division within the church. The rumor mill started, and through a, a series of very unfortunate events, Jonathan Edwards was actually fired by his church in Northampton. And even the church admitted later that it was unjust, it wasn't founded at all, and that it came through slanders and lies that led to him being released, which bad when you fire Jonathan Edwards from your church, though it was a blessing to others because he ended up going on to be a missionary to Native Americans after that and was a, was a blessing to them. 
But you can see that the danger of slander that can destroy and can undermine the church. And so that's why Paul is saying you need two or three witnesses. And, and so this is, of course, important for the church, for church courts that carry out church discipline. But it's also important for individuals within a church. Not even within a church, I would say just the Christian community. That if you hear a rumor about a pastor, it could be your own pastor, it could be a pastor at a different church, you don't repeat that rumor unless you know that it's true. You don't spread slander, you don't spread gossip. I think sometimes people think that, that it's okay to say unfounded information about leaders. We see this even in politics where somebody will hear an accusation and then start repeating it on social media, not thinking to actually verify the information. But, but slander and gossip can still take place even for public people, for, for leaders, whether religious leaders or political leaders. So we need to be careful to guard our language against gossip and against slander. But of course, though the church is guarding against slander, it also needs to guard against scandal, that that can be a danger as well, because in our sense to protect the elder of the church, it can be brought to an extreme, an unhealthy extreme. So you can think of the, the pastor, um, Robbie Zacharias. I've talked about him before in previous sermons, but he was a, a well-known pastor, a well-known evangelist, a well-known Christian apologist who defended Christianity on campuses around the world. And apparently there had been a, a long history of accusations of sexual misconduct, of him abusing women in his ministry. But the ministry kept dismissing all of the accusations, even though they kept coming up multiple times, because they said, we are honoring our leader. We're protecting our leader. And, and this is just Satan trying to undermine a fruitful ministry for the gospel. And so we don't want to, to undermine what God is doing through the ministry of Ravi Zacharias. And so we're not going to deal with these multiple accusations. And of course, he, it ended up surfacing that it was most likely true, uh, tragically, even after his, his death. But, but now the ministry is dealing with the fallout of this, that the church, those who were ministered to by Ravi Zacharias face the fallout. And so you can see that, that the church wasn't just protecting their minister from slander, but they were actually failing to protect the office of the minister from scandal. They were failing to protect the, the church from ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing, that they were failing to protect victims of abuse within the church. And that's a travesty. That is evil. That's, that's wrong. And that's why Paul continues his thought in verse 20. So he says, don't admit a charge against an elder without proper witnesses. But then verse 20, he says that as for those who persist in sin. And so when, it, when you do have the witnesses seeing that a leader is found in sin, he says, rebuke them in the presence of all, that there needs to be public acknowledgement of the sin. And the purpose is so that the rest may stand in fear. And then this, this solemn warning, he says, that in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. 
So Paul brings God and Christ and the heavenly hosts to witness in the trial against ministers who are found in sin. And there's this warning to Timothy and to the leaders of the church. Do nothing from partiality. Don't judge the minister more severely because he is a minister. Do not judge him less severely or give him a a means of trying to shield himself from legitimate accusation. So in other words, he's saying that you need proper evidence. If the evidence is there, the church has a responsibility to act. And within our polity in the Presbyterian church, as a teaching elder within the church, uh, that the, the, it's the presbytery, the network of churches in the region that holds teaching elders accountable. So if there were sufficient witnesses of some sort of wrongdoing, unrepentant sin from a minister, it would go to presbytery. If, the, if it seemed credible, if the person didn't repent, they would be taken out of their office. They would be removed from office within the church. And they would also be excommunicated from the church. But if they repent, then they wouldn't be excommunicated from the church. The church doesn't remove people from membership who repent. That, that, that the call is always repentance, knowing that God forgives. But in most cases, the person would still be removed from their office within the church to guard the church, or what Paul says, so that the rest may stand in fear. And this is very important. This is part of honoring leadership, the accountability of the presbytery, and of the pastors in the region as part of the way of honoring the leadership of the church. So again, the church honors leadership by guarding against slander and scandal. But then here's the third and final way that we honor leaders within the church. That the church honors its leadership by guarding against unqualified leaders by guarding against unqualified leaders. So look at verse 22. Paul says, Do not be hasty in laying on hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And so what Paul is talking about there is the ordination of an elder within the church. When I was ordained as a teaching elder, Other elders came to my ordination service and then laid their hands on me as part of the ordination service. This is how ordination takes place even today. And Paul's saying, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. And the reason is that, one, if you lay your hands on somebody in a hasty way and then they fall into sin, that in part it's your fault. And so he says, don't take place in the sins of others. That that is part of your responsibility to guard the office, to honor the office of elder by not letting people in who aren't truly qualified. But then also, we know just from from life that it's a lot easier to get somebody into a place of authority than to get them out of a place of authority. Um, it's, It's easier to hire an employee than to get rid of an employee quite often. And it's the same within the church, that, that it's easy to let somebody in because they can talk the talk, but, but if they're not truly walking the walk, then, then you're opening yourself up to damage for the church, damage for the name of Christ, and even for the person. Because if somebody is ordained to the, to the office of elder prematurely, 
they may have a pattern of sin in their life, but there's something about ordained leadership within the church that, that irritates and festers sin. And so if somebody has a pattern of sin in their life that, they, that they're not dealing with, if they get ordained, if they become a leader in the church, it's actually going to make it worse. And it's going to, not, it's going to be damaging for themselves and for the church. So Paul says, be careful, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. Now, I do want to address briefly verse 23. Uh, it's parenthetical, and it's breaking the flow of what Paul is saying here about guarding against unqualified leaders within the church. And of course, people struggle to know why this is here. Why does Paul all of a sudden break and give Timothy health advice? when he's talking about something so serious. Uh, John Calvin thought that perhaps it was a marginal note in the original manuscript that, that Paul wrote something in the margins. Hey, quick note for you, Timothy, before I wanted to forget, and that over time it made it into the primary text in a parenthetical way. That's possible. Paul sometimes also just likes to throw thoughts that are in. He's, he's not always the most linear thinker. But, but here he, he stops and thinks that it's important to address Timothy's failing health. And it could be that he wants him to guard against a sinful asceticism. We talked about that back at the end of chapter 4. It could be that he's saying, Timothy, this is a serious endeavor to be engaged in the ministry in the church. That there's responsibility of, for, for the sake of other elders and laying your hands on and holding church other pastors accountable and so you need to, to watch out for your health so you can fulfill the role of a minister but i still think that we can draw out a, some interesting insight from this parenthetical comment of paul uh, because there are some believers who say that that all drinking of alcohol is wrong and i respect that that view but here paul talks about wine and he says you can have a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. And the word doesn't mean grape juice, it means wine. And even, of course, science, you see studies that's, that talk about the health benefits of an occasional glass of wine for your heart, that it can actually be good for your health, even according to modern science. So you have to be careful that if you have a history of alcoholism in your family, or if you've struggled with alcohol abuse, then probably it's a good idea to not drink at all. The health benefit would not be worth the risk. But as a general principle for believers, it's a matter of Christian liberty, that, that Christians have freedom to be able to, to drink or not drink in moderation, and that there can be some, some benefits, as you see here from Paul. So that's the parenthetical comment that we needed to talk about. But just as we, we finish up our time together, then we'll get back to the main discourse from Paul. So look at the final Two verses of our text, verse 22, I'm sorry, verse 24, he says, The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. And so this is saying that, that one reason to not be hasty in the laying on of hands is that some people you know that they're in blatant sin right off the bat, but sometimes it takes time of testing to see that 
what is the actual character of the person who's being tested. But then on the other hand, some people, you, you see their fruitfulness of their, of their work and of their giftedness for ministry right away. But then others, you don't see it. But then as, as time goes on, you say, wow, this person, they, they, they serve in so many different ways that I didn't even recognize it at first. And so there's this accounting that can be in this life. But of course, the ultimate accounting is in the day of judgment, that, that when we consider the day of judgment, that there will come a day when, when every hidden sin will be exposed and a day of judgment where, where every hidden act of love and compassion and grace will also be brought to bear. And it is in that, that day when we face judgment that the ultimate leader will matter. Because we, we said that with, with human leaders, we face the danger of, of dishonoring them, undervaluing them, or idolizing them. And that's because human leaders will always let us down, that they, they will never be perfect, they'll, they'll always be sinners, that every single person in the church is a sinner, including elders, including ministers. And that's why the ultimate one that we seek to honor is the ultimate leader of our souls, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that teaching elders are just under shepherds, under that true minister, because he is the ultimate one who can enable us to stand on that day of judgment, the, the one who brings everything to light. But when everything is exposed, if we are in Christ, then we know that, that our sin has been counted to him, that we're clothed in his righteousness. And so when everything is brought to bear in the final day, that, that we can stand clothed in the perfect life of Jesus because of his work and, and resting in Christ as our true leader, as the true shepherd of his flock his church. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to your church throughout the ages. And Lord, we, we pray for your church, for Hope Church, but for the church broadly in the world, that you would guard it against the extremes of dishonoring its leaders or idolizing its leaders. We pray that the church can be faithful in its um, support of ministers and of missionaries. Uh, we, we thank you for the generous care of Hope Church. Um, Lord, we, we thank you for the accountability structures that you have given within the church, that, that no leader should be unaccountable. And so, Father, we pray that while guarding against slander and gossip, that you would bring to light what is hidden. Father, we, we pray that that for churches and, and ministries, that if there are, are pastors who are abusing the sheep, uh, pastors who are sociopathic in their, their treatment of their staff, Lord, that, that you, would, you would bring it to light, that, that the church would be willing to, to deal with it, that, that church, churches would not only honor their ministers, but honor the office of their ministers, that they would honor the name of Christ, that they would honor of those who are being mistreated by, by leaders. And Father, we, we pray for leaders who are considering entering into the role of teaching elder or ruling elder. We thank you for the, the time of testing that they have. We thank you that, that they are able to be trained, that they're able to be discipled. And Father, we pray for a whole new generation of 
young elders, young ruling elders to be raised up and to elders to lead the church, uh, young teaching elders, which sounds like a contradiction to say young elder, but we know that Timothy was. But uh, Father, we, we pray for a that you would guard the, the, the entrance way into the office and so that those who are serving are, are serving truly, humbly, and sincerely in the name of Christ. And I pray that for me, uh, that I could, could model the humility and diligence and care of Christ. And Lord, I pray you would forgive me for all of my sin, all of my failing. Uh, and Lord, we pray that you would continue to bless and to build up Hope Church, especially as we look someday to have ruling elders to, to elect ruling elders for this church. We pray that you would you would raise up elders um, who meet the qualifications of scripture and who can serve to, to shepherd your church. And so Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.